0: Welcome to the Unsung Podcast.
1: <laughs> okay, Dave's. the new. Dave, you're going to be in your element this week, Sunshine. And the the glens and the highlands
2: and uh, the oh.
1: industry and aye, good old boys, eh? Good, old, good boys. old boys. So, this is going to be undoubtedly the most Scottishest episode of the Unsung Scottish Podcast. Well, yet. I mean, it's I
2: suitably pissing with rain outside. And oh you've just discovered you've got a vitamin D deficiency So how Scottish
1: can we be? So I've I've not been keeping very well And I went to get tested for various things And in, in an almost self-owning bit of racism uh, It turns out I've got an acute vitamin D deficiency Despite walking literally almost a couple of hundred miles a month uh, Walking in Scotland apparently doesn't get you any vitamin D So uh, yeah, there you go Well, bugger it could have been worse Could have had the rickets Rickets, rickets. So that was old school yeah. Scottish
2: Yeah <laughs> a, good, <laughs> a good Glasgow disease <laughs>
1: It's like a, a vitamin D deficiency made you, made you walk like a cowboy With all these bone deformities Yeah, I've not quite oh. got that yet But uh, aye So that's been my week Mark, how about you? Uh, I became an uncle Which is pretty cool Woo! Um, congratulations I believe you're meeting the, the young lady On Skype after Yeah, on Zoom Aye I was just saying to David, I think it's absolutely amazing to the modern generation that she's, what, five days old and she can already work the
0: Zoom. Yes, yeah, incredible. It's incredible.
1: Fucking, <laughs> <That was incredible. laughs> okay, I mean, honestly, we were dinosaurs, guys. I, I bet you, in fact, she's even worked out that thing with Zoom with the backgrounds. Uh, listeners, if you've never done this, uh, I recommend it. But you know you can change your backgrounds, mm. right? If you set your computer down and you film a background without moving your computer, you film a background, right, where... It's just the room for ages and then maybe peek your head around the corner of a door mm-hmm. and then peek your head back away again. Or do something weird like pop your head up behind a couch or even just walk through the room. But then just leave it recording. And then when it comes time to do your Skype call, set that up as your background. And the people that are talking to you will just assume that that is the background of the room as per normal. And then they'll see... As you're talking, they'll also see your head peeking round the corner of the door, and it proper freaks them out. Man, it's really good. King of the
2: surrealist uh, business meeting.
1: Christopher. <laughs> yeah, honestly, you heard that here first. Well, probably not first. I'm sure loads of people have done it, but I highly recommend it. It's very effective.
2: Uh, I guess we should introduce ourselves.
0: Yeah, Mark, probably should. Who are you? I'm Mark. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> Uncle Mark. Uncle. Now Uncle on. Mark. Yeah. Chris, who are you? Uh, I'm
1: your what am I? Papa I'm, Chris. I'm, I'm 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 nothing, Chris. I'm only child, Chris. I'm like sad, lonely bastard here. Oh, me! Too. I'm a lonely. I'm an only child as well. Jesus, That's right? So you
0: never
2: don't. be an
1: uncle.
0: That's probably why we don't host a podcast. We're just the underlings. <laughs> <laughs> it's a flat hierarchy in this podcast. Yeah, Mark, then everybody else. <laughs> so this week is my choice, and
1: I'm really pleased about it because it's it's a band that I've taken varying amounts of heat for over the course of my life. Passing through You know Waves of nostalgia Versus Chronic unhipness. Um But I really love this band Big Country I mean The, the name alone Is just evocative of Scotland mm-hmm. Especially if you live here They're just One of the most Scottish things In Scotland Yet they managed to do it and in, in my book at least Also be just fantastic At the same time uh, We are Going to specifically focus on Or I'm going to make, try and make a case For their album The Crossing yeah. Uh, as their unsung classic. I am very aware that The Crossing is uh, arguably their most beloved album uh, by their fans, and it certainly sold pretty well. But I think, in a sort of wider sense, it's unsung in the context of great 80s uh, alternative pop and post punk records. I think it's a, a really accomplished recording, and the band are not always treated with the seriousness that I think they deserve. There are a couple of reasons for that, which we'll touch on. One of them is to do with a stupid fucking guitar pedal that sounds like a bagpipe. But um, superb musicians, superb songwriters and people that I think were just amongst the best of that generation. Um, and yet they, they they rarely make that top bracket in discussions. Uh, so let's have a wee, a wee look at that. However, I think also, as a podcast, we're probably the best equipped of anyone I know, to discuss this band. Uh, uh, Quite apart from playing uh, the Scottish card, Uh, we also have a reasonable amount of immersion in things like Scottish history, which is a really, really big part of this band's shtick. You know, as lyricist Stuart Adamson, the main guy, he really ambitiously chose to dip into, you know, 17th and 18th century Scottish politics and events, you know, sizable events in, in the history of this country, and then into even through into like the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, aspects of the economy and working class life here. I mean it's it's a really interesting band in 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 terms of the issues that they address. Uh, so I think we're probably well placed to scrutinize that. What are your guys' thoughts on big country? Are you gonna laugh at me out the shop? N- not necessarily. I
2: I mean we'll go into what they sound like. Um I, w- I would say that they funnily enough, have a little bit more legitimacy than RunRig do in Scotland. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> but I would I'd definitely say that they are underrated nationally. Um, I mean, it's interesting... We'll go into Stuart Adamson's guitar sound and just their overall sound, which I think is pretty important. Um there are definite parts of their discography that you could just interchange with Runrig. Um there's definitely some poor records. I think the story of the band is very interesting and of course the story of Stuart as well, which is fairly tragic in the end. Um Absolutely. And I guess we'll talk about that. Um I I had a best of big country cd when i was 15 or 16 and it got tanned it was great um Mm. and it's been interesting going in and like working out which album does what and how they stand up next to each other and i you know i i've got a complicated uh sort of relationship with scottishness and scottish nationalism anyway which i guess we'll also discuss um yeah so i it's been an interesting week of research
0: mark what about you uh I'm largely unfamiliar with them. Uh, they're a band which, unfortunately, after maybe the mid-80s, they have a, a lot of what I, I'm going to call BDE, and it's not big dick energy, it's big dad energy. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> they do become quite dad-rocky, um, particularly towards the late 80s onwards. And that's not necessarily always a bad thing. But those first few albums, first couple of albums actually in particular, like you can make a great case for them being hugely influential and underappreciated, I think. I was taken aback by how much I enjoyed The, the Crossing in Steeltown. Like, actually, mm-hmm. was walking into it near thinking I wouldn't like it because I'm not a huge fan of post-punk, but it's got enough other hooks. And I bit like Dave, I also have a complicated relationship with Scottish nationalism, Scottish being Scottish in general. That's kind of informed my opinion on them a wee bit, um, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that as we go through. Dave, you made a really interesting point there as well because you you had the compilation when
1: you were younger. I, my dad to the compilation in Big Country it was on cassette, and I, I I totally rinsed that as well. I hadn't ever really engaged with the albums. It, it was actually like a, an ex-girlfriend of mine who even introduced me to The Crossing as an album. I don't know why. I just wasn't particularly inquisitive in that. I kind of assumed that stuff was going to be naff. Because even on The Greatest Hits, it was, it was maybe a third of it was a bit naff. But, but the rest of it was really, really pretty good. Mm-hmm. And yet, on this album, there are so many fantastic bits of of music and also so many ideas that I didn't realise had stuck to me as a young musician so uh, we'll come back to that as well Um, I'll set the scene I think it's important to acknowledge off the bat, Big Country are still a band right? but Stuart Adamson who is large, he he was one of the two guys that really started the project he was very much the face of the band, main lyricist, Um, Stuart was the main personality of the band I think to some extent as well and he took his own life in December of 2001, uh, which we'll, we'll discuss a wee bit later on. Uh, the band persevered afterwards, I mean, some years after, I think it was 2007. Uh, they they did some they did at least one show. I think it was a 25th anniversary show as a trio, minus Stuart, with, with the bassist, uh, Tony Butler, doing vocals on that occasion, having previously done backing vocals. And Tony... There's some interviews online, so a lot of really good interviews with these guys, actually. They're a very likeable bunch of people. they to come across really well. Um, and Tony Butler, as much as anybody. Um, and he described that as being a very odd experience. You know, it took a bit of convincing to get him to do it, and he said it really felt strange. Uh, from 2010, they actually decided to play again, as a five-piece, with Jamie Watson, who's the son of the other founder, Bruce Watson, the guitarist, and also a guy called Mike Peters, Who was the singer of a band called The Alarm, a Welsh rock band in the 80s, who were kind of quite successful as well? Sort of like toured with Simple Minds and stuff like that, and had a song called 68 Guns, which I think was probably the one that people are most likely to know them for. Um, Mike Peters joined on vocals He was quite close to the band already He was he was quite good friends with Big Country I think they'd played together as well um, Peters actually said that in, oh, in About the year 2000 Stuart Adamson, prior to Stuart Adamson's death clearly uh, Had actually discussed Stepping away from the band He had a lot of problems with the trappings Of being in a successful band He didn't really enjoy the publicity side of it I'm sure most musicians would say they don't But some enjoy the fame And Stuart, certainly from his personality Never really seemed to be your typical famous rock musician he still seemed very down to earth and uneasy with that so Stuart supposedly gave his blessing uh, to Peters if he indeed took over if Stuart stepped away um, after Stuart's death in 2001 I think uh, Peters described being approached about doing some sort of tribute thing in 2002 but declined because he said it was too soon too raw uh, he did however agree to join in when they approached him again in 2010 where they, 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 they were looking to play in earnest what I would say is the band were very conscious of not becoming what you would what they describe and what you might call a heritage band. But a band that just tours on its legacy. You know, like twenty fifth anniversary, thirtieth anniversary, thirtieth anniversary of this single, thirtieth anniversary of the next album. Like all these kind of like heritage groups. And there's a hell of a lot of that now. I mean some some of the biggest bands of the eighties are now nothing more than just a roll them out in wheelchairs kind of kind of thing. And at the time, especially uh, Tony Butler had done interviews saying he really didn't want to be a heritage band. He was like willing to play if it was still a current thing and then he found that a bit too much. It didn't feel right without Stewart and so he'd stepped away, I think it was about 2012, he finally stopped playing altogether with him. But yeah, I think there's no getting away from the fact that the Big Country have become a heritage band. Now, I've actually seen them uh, in recent years and, by the way, they were, they were really fucking good. They were really fucking good. Unironically, really, really good, uh, actually. Oh, a thanks to a listener of the pod, Kenny Benella, for getting me into that show. It absolutely made my day. I had a lovely time at it, but it was nostalgic. It was nostalgia. It was a nostalgia trip, and I think Kenny would probably agree with me on that. Albeit, it was terrific. Really enjoyed it. And I'm not trying to disrespect the band. They have released music. Nothing they've done since 1988 has really been good. Um, and even the returns were dwindling before then. But yeah, they they do still exist. They are not the big country that people will know from memory. I am pleased that they still exist. I had a lovely time going to see them and I would encourage anybody that's a fan of them to still go and see them. It is worth it. It is worth it. It's enjoyable. But it is what it is. You're going for the nostalgia. You're not going to see some energetic, relevant current band.
2: Uh, funnily enough, you can also go see The Skids yeah who are stuart adamsons previous band and they are still touring and uh, they're still tight as hell live mm-hmm. yep you know
1: they actually tour they, together. sometimes they play together yeah 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 and these these things are fun i just think you know i think tony was right when tony stepped away he he called it he, he's like this is now effectively a heritage band and he, he didn't want to do that and that's that's fair enough mm-hmm. um yeah so big country were formed in 1981 in dunfermline uh, in Fife, a really interesting part of Scotland, the kingdom by the standard, <laughs> even <laughs> by the standards of Scotland, uh, it's
2: it, about for the ten part- miles by the crow flies from where Cocktail Twins come from, just across the water. But uh, it's probably a forty-five minute drive.
1: I think that's pronounced "water." Aye, ah, that is "water." water. Ah. The water. <laughs> across the water. <laughs> yeah, actually, a really to this day still a, a very thickened environment for music in Scotland and actually Big Country, we'll we'll discuss it a bit later, but Big Country, you can definitely hear the echoes of them through some of the biggest kind of big indie Scots acts, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Big Indie is something that we do a lot of up here, especially because of the vocal and the accent seems to lend itself to it, anyway uh, 1981 they they formed, as uh, Dave said, Adamson had actually started the Skids, uh, which is a much more punk thing, uh, back in 1977 in Dunfermline, sort of melodic punk, not like snotty really Um, Their biggest song was probably 1979,
2: Into the Valley.
1: Which I think got to number 10 in the charts. couple interesting wee bits of trivia about them they had their second album Days in Europa was withdrawn and had the cover redesigned and I think one of the tracks changed after some people including John Peel felt it glorified Nazi or Aryan imagery. Such your your, your first (laughs) cancelled way back then uh, The thought police on the case Uh, I mean clearly the skids were in no way courting Nazi imagery but there you go. It was it was too much. Uh, the following album to that, the, the absolute game, was the, the biggest. And if you're going to check the Skids out, it's probably a good place to look because it was like the biggest selling one as well. Adamson actually left the Skids in 1981 to form Big Country. Um, the band continued, the Skids continued, and at least another couple of years. And as Dave says, they've reformed since. There was a show in 2007, I think, where the Skids. It is a tribute to Stuart Adamson, which featured Bruce Watson from Big Country in the skids as well, which was a big one for fans of either, I think. I guess the elephant in the room that sort of defines the band now is the sort of era tragedy around them. Stuart committed suicide in Hawaii, of all places, in 2001 in a hotel room. He hung himself from an electrical fitting. After consuming quite a bit of alcohol I think it was rumoured to be around Three three bottles of wine Just necked it um, His band members have done some really really interesting Very honest kind of heartbreaking Interviews about this um, Stuart had moved away, he'd moved to Nashville in the States. He seemed to be drifting out of the band. As I said, he'd already spoken to a replacement, a potential replacement vocalist about taking taking his spot. He'd started a group called the Raphaels, which was a much more folky thing, a much more kinda Americana, country influenced thing. Um actually the the night that his his absence was noticed was because he didn't turn up for their fifth show in Nashville. Uh, he'd done four concerts and the fourth one of them became his last ever because the, he just didn't show on that fifth night. Uh, Big Country had posted on their website uh, about his absence and I think they'd they'd asked him to contact them, and then the, the concern kind of grew exponentially from there until his body was eventually discovered in Hawaii. I, I don't think people are particularly sure of his movements prior to that. I think there was something to do with him being worried about coming back to Scotland. He, he'd separated from his wife, but he has a daughter. Uh, her name's Kirsten, who's actually sang on a, a number of their, their, their releases, and there's there's a there's a video on I think it's BBC for a show called BBC Loop, where she reads a letter to her dad that she wrote. It's a very touchy thing. It's just like an open letter to her dad from her as an adult, talking about missing him and being proud of him, and yeah, it's it's a really sad story. I, rem- I remember when it was announced, uh, and I think that cast a real shadow over Big Country's catalogue. Part of the reason that they said they wanted to reform and part of the reason that uh, I think Bruce Watson went into this in quite a lot of detail, part of the reason they wanted to record again was because they really didn't want people to listen to Big Country's back catalogue with this era tragedy over it all the time. They wanted just in some way to sort of breathe some life back into it and even though that was undeniably the nadir of all their lives as well as the, the band's existence... They they wanted somehow to associate Big Country with some sort of positivity going forward, not to just have this horrible, grim ending in 2001 and forever. You know, the first thing you said when anyone put a Big Country record on was, you know, that guy killed himself. But as to how successful that's been, I don't know. Because it is a band that is just automatically associated with tragedy. Even when I was telling people this week what we were doing the episode on, it was often their first comment.
2: But their music doesn't reflect that, uh, you know... The music does sound optimistic and adventurous and exciting. And although there will always be that context around it, it does seem unfair that people tag that tragedy onto it because it it is mostly uplifting and there is an air of adventure to it. So um yeah, I mean I, I don't I, I don't really associate the tragedy with the music when I'm listening to it. I'm just going, Fucking hell, it's good to be Scottish, eh? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, you know, one thing about, that struck me about Big Country, and, and it'll be something that we come back to as we go through all the different bits of their catalogue, but see, Stuart Adamson really sang, right? He really sang. There's an emotional honesty and vulnerability to the guy that um, I think is not always there. It's certainly in the 80s as well. I mean, he belted it out, to mm-hmm. use a Scottish term. You know, he's clearly a guy with a lot of intense emotional depths, um, and he's sort of putting himself, he's making himself quite vulnerable in doing that. He's got big, heartfelt choruses, some of them optimistic, some of them a little bit pessimistic or melancholy. But um, I-, I think that big singing that he does, that big, naked, emotional singing that he does, has kind of informed a lot of acts. Maybe talk about a couple of names in a minute. I know that The Edge, who gave, who read his eulogy, The Edge for you too. Um, who's a big fan of his, said that uh, he wrote the songs that you two wished they could write, which I think's remarkably true <laughs> and and honest to the guy. Um, I think when you look back at that era, the 80s, uh, with, with many exceptions, but a lot of stuff that's come back into vogue, the quite goth pop thing, you know, that baritone thing, I, I was kind of musing on that this week. And I, I love that. I love a bit of, you know, the, the typo negative thing, the sort of... Um, What's that band called? Drab Majesty of kind of really mm. taking this mantle in, in modern times. But you know what? I find that there's some really emotionally guarded about that kind of singing. You know, it's it's almost the performance of emotion that like it is designed to sort of. Almost say to the listener, I'm enigmatic I could have emotional depths But I'm very protective of them And therefore you will have to get inside And and find my emotional vulnerability I think there's a bit of a sort of exchange With the audience when you're doing that kind of vocal There's a bit of a sort of kayfabe going on there I think Um, think that's maybe what The bigger
2: bands that were doing this sort of stuff Stood out with, was they did have Kind of emotional performances From their singers Yeah, You know, like you 2 The Cure uh, simple Minds, like the Pesh Mode. Like they actually did put some feeling into things, whereas yeah, that sort of more fashionable thing that's come become you know sort of retro, the the cold wave sort of stuff was really cool but it was yeah definitely emotionally guarded it was definitely hip and fashionable and very art school rather than you know. Yeah
1: it's it's interesting because it's seen as being I don't know those singers especially the men in the, in that sub genre are seen as being quite brooding and intense but it is a very guarded thing and I think it was actually a lot bolder to do what the likes of Stuart Adamson did and really commit to these songs and maybe fall short, as he often did, but be willing to take that chance as opposed to a lot of the other acts that were like, no, we've got a formula, we stick to it because it's safe. We stick within, you know, these three notes, one up, two down, you know, that that that's it. Mm-hmm. That's where we go. And I had never really thought about that before about how it's quite a safe approach and there are a lot of those bands are still popular, but tend to be popular in a more cult way and yeah i've, I've i mean it's a new idea for me i'm st- i'm still I'm still developing it, but definitely I, I really noticed the contrast uh, when I was going through the country's back catalog how bold he was he um he actually he wrote in the sleeve notes
2: for the c d reissue of the Crossing, and he kind of put it perfectly in terms of not just how he put his heart into it but also how he wanted the sort of the sound to convey that sort of big landscape and the very Scottishness and he said the music I felt wasn't like the music I had grown up hearing or rather not like any one of them it was all of them jumbled jumbled up and drawn into something I could understand as mine I found that I could play this music and connect the guitar directly into my heart I found others Mm -hmm. who can make the same connection who could see the music as well as play it um which is a really nice way of putting it.
1: It is, yeah. Um, I th- one other thing, though, to, uh, an idea that's probably important to hold in our minds at the same time, is that Big Country was a project, not just like four naive kids from high school. Um, I mean, okay, Bruce Watson and Stuart started it and they were a little bit sort of unsure where it was going to go. Apparently the very early stuff had a lot of synths and actually sounded quite like Depeche Mode. They were doing it on... A multi-track recorder and things like that. But when they went down to London uh, and and recruited the services of Tony and uh, Mark, uh, Mark, Br- uh, we're going to go Burzyski. Burzyski. Does anyone want to take a, a stab at Mark's name? I thought Burzyski was probably what it was going to be. Burzyski. Yeah. Right. We'll try. We'll try and. Go I with remember Br- that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and Tony Butler, they were recruited for their abilities. They were I mean, Stuart wanted a good band. They'd, I mean, they'd apparently at that point uh, approached um, Dave Allen, mm-hmm. who was the bassist to Gang of Four. And um, I mean, David Allen had, had turned it down, but uh, they, they, they were looking to create, not, not a super group, but they were looking to create something with a goal in mind of making bigger, more commercial. Yeah, they, I mean, the, they
2: had connections and they had success on, in their pockets already. Exactly.
1: So. Yeah, he'd penned a couple of like almost big songs with the Skids, you know, like say so he'd had that one at number ten, and he obviously saw a lot of potential, and and he, he obviously realised that he had an aptitude uh, that went in that direction. So it's interesting like, a Big Country as not been a manufactured band for it by any standards, but what I mean is they just had a they had a goal, and I think they they set out to try and achieve it. Yet at the same time. In amongst that, I feel there is a real naivety to Big Country. I mean, okay, they were trying to marry this Scottishness thing with the, the lore and the history, but then they were also doing quite quite naive things like the bagpipe sound on the guitar. That will clearly get discussed quite a bit when we're actually doing the crossing album breakdown but the bagpipe sound may well have broken this band It may, you know it's very hard to stand out from a pack in the early days you know why did Big Country for example end up being bigger than The Alarm maybe it was something as silly as that the only problem is I think also in the long run it compromised their credibility factor you know and it it sort of became the thing that they were dismissed Yeah at one point it was a USP and then
2: it kind of crossed over to be a gimmick or at like least, exactly. you know, in the eyes of maybe the mainstream or whatever.
1: Definitely became an iro for a lot of people. I mean, I've experienced that as well. You know, like I said, when I was unironically embracing these guys, it was often met with, oh, for fuck's sake, the Bagpipe band, you know, and it's like, man, this, this band have got so many great songs. I mean, I actually don't particularly like that sound, um, but I've learned to live with it. Because the songs are so good that it that it's part of. And it's not even that many of the songs. It's just, it's just the a few. But uh, I mean, I do think that's a little bit naive. So you have this sort of attempt to do something professionally coupled with this sort of what I think was... A, and Stuart certainly in the long run was really frustrated about that sound. He hated getting asked about it in interviews. I think they overcompensate in some of their later records by trying to sort of like get away from it so much that they end up just being, as you said, dad rock. Like just pure M.O.R trying to really get rid of this old reputation as being Tuchters. Uh, Tuchters, Dave? How dare they? Do you want to to clue in the
2: audience on a Tuchter? Oh, aye. A Tuchter is somebody from beyond the Highland boundary. Uh, Maybe someone that speaks Gaelic, or at least knows somebody that speaks Gaelic. Uh, Basically, an out-of-towner. Somebody that's not from the big city. Somebody from the north of Scotland. And... I mean, these these city fellas will tell you that we shag sheep, but you know, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> we just look after them very well.
1: Dave, as a vegan, takes very good care of the sheep. None of them are molested. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, in trying to, sh- to sort of shed those tuchter labels, they, there's no denying that they had a huge, huge element of folk music in, in their stuff. That's actually often a, a total asset of the band. I mean, even just within the context of a rock song, they trill on the guitar, they use sort of scales and approaches that are very, very, very typical of Scottish and Irish folk music. Um, actually, it's interesting. It was uh, Bruce Watson actually said they made a, con- a conscious
2: effort not to play any blues notes. Um, and that was kind of a punk thing, but it was also definitely a folk thing. Like He said, we wouldn't bend strings... For the first few albums We're not bending notes right Because that's just Fucking piss, He says <laughs> And I mean That's a punk attitude But they were definitely Using like folk scales And stuff like that
1: And sometimes It's actually Really rousing um, And I think it's also When you look into Some of the work they did In the likes of Restless Natives The film uh, That we'll give a shout to And we're going through Their catalogue It's part of what makes it so effective It's got a real sort of punch the air element Maybe it's just the Scottish blood in my veins Stuart often through his music goes Hurt Hi Hurt Hey And it's the sort of thing that used to happen during Cayleys. You remember that? Yeah, absolutely. You're you're doing yeah.
2: the Dashing White Sergeant or the Gay Gordons. And
1: and that, I don't think that's a connection a lot of people make. But if you go to a Scottish Cayley, like a Scottish traditional dance, and I'm sure it's the same in Ireland or basically any Celtic culture, um, you get these kind of guys that are leading the band and they'll just throw in these little bursts of enthusiasm to sort of whip up the band and whip up the audience and everybody will kind it. Sometimes you get a call and response where the audience will go, Ee-e-e! And you get all these little kind of rituals as part of these traditional um, events. And Stuart, whether or not he was doing it on purpose, incorporates a lot of that. Hey! Oh! All these kind of, almost like a shepherd or something like that, shouting at his fucking dog. It's a really strange thing that their music has all these tiny little um, moments of Scottish culture. I'm not. I'm not sure how many of these are picked up on by other people. They maybe just don't recognise it. But for us, I mean, personally, I really recognise it, and it, it, it always also made it very personal to me. The music. Um, I mean, against that background, I just want to qualify though. Against that background of sort of like chutzpahism and sort of like being a wee bit sort of corny and folky, they were fucking brilliant musicians. I mean, Stuart Adamson is a tremendous songwriter. He's a great singer he's a very good guitarist bruce bruce watson was a very good guitarist the style of guitar that they pioneered uh, i think was really really uh, informative on me personally i didn't realize until you know 15 years later when i was in my own first kind of real project we also set up in a similar way bass drums two guitars and we always wanted the guitars to intertwine in the way that these guys intertwined their guitars they were deconstructing chords I mean, Bruce Watson said that when they started, they didn't want to sound like there were twin guitar bands at the time. You had Thin Lizzy and Status Quo, ACDC. They didn't want to do that big rock thing of the guitars either doing harmonized drifts or chugging along with each other in the same way. They wanted to try and find a way to use these guitars. And, you know, they shed the synth stuff pretty early on, but they wanted to compensate for that as well. So you've got really interesting modulation and effects on the guitar sounds. You've got Ebos, and then you've got this. These brilliant arrangements with their deconstructing Chords and weaving them in and out each other We've talked about this in the show before A lot of bands have done this, At The Driving have done this uh, I think their later days, things like Idlewild Have done this, some of my favourite acts Instead of playing a big flat chord Like might have been in Vogue in the early 90s They disassemble them and, and they weave them through each other And it sort of creates the illusion of the chord Without it being so chunky You know what I mean, mm-hmm. you're not taking that big Big bite of potato you know, you're getting that—that that, it's—it's much more fragmented. I love that about it, and I also think the rhythm section in Big Country was crucial to the success of the band. Yeah, I think uh, Brzezinski is honestly one of the best drummers of the 80s. I think he's a fucking brilliant drummer and also a phenomenal drum writer. Uh, he's he's spoken about how the producers they worked with allowed him to really flourish he was he was a session drummer uh, before he joined the band and he did he did say that there's some producers who are really just say no oh, this is what we need you to do whereas with Big Country he was allowed to add and try and complement the music and there's there's tracks that he improves 100% alone and Tony Butler also fantastic bass player really interesting bass lines uh didn't ever overplay and a great backing vocalist as well. So you have a really, really competent band leader. Yeah, like I mean, and he, he basically, at times,
2: it sounds like a third guitar. <laughs> it does kind of have the post-punk sort of sound to it, but he's doing much more interesting things with it yeah, yeah. totally solid band and uh, another person that's really important is steve lillywhite the producer absolutely um, first, well
1: first three albums eh? yeah
2: first three uh, which are you know pretty much the three high most high the, the three that are regarded well um and he'd also produced u2 and simple minds in in one year so you know he was a huge part of creating that sound but apparently personally as well he was a huge part of Bringing the best out of um, the whole band and not just uh, getting Stuart to do his thing he he would go and find the person in the band who was kind of hiding away and give him confidence rather than mm-hmm. um, you know fill the leader up with uh, ego so yeah interesting yeah th-
1: aside for those bands so we'd also for example done stuff with XTC who who likewise were these real innovators within that sort of post punk indie pop framework And I think those are more natural companions to Big Country for me than some of the bands they were classed with, just because they had they had real original ideas and they were doing something with that separated guitar thing that likes a Figazi and stuff years later would just take in amazing directions. I'm not saying Figazi were spending a lot of time listening to Big Country, but the bands like Wire and Susie and the Banshees and X T C they were listening to it and they were hearing this this revolution in the way that two guitars could play together and all of the possibilities that opened up. I think it was really, really vital.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I guess another thing to talk about just before we actually talk about their back catalogue is kind of the the context of where they placed Scottish identity and where they were a part of, I guess, Scottish history and a wee rebirth of Scottish nationalism in the late 70s and the early 80s. Mm. Um, Mark, you were agreeing with me on having sort of complicated relationship with Scottish identity and Scottish nationalism. I mean, from my higher history perspective, I remember in the late 70s, the SNP came to the fore off the discovery of North Sea oil. Scottish nationalism was kind of a new thing, basically. And then five years of Thatcher, by the time 84 came around in that general election, Scotland was getting pretty pissed off. And that's when we saw things like um like the film Restless Natives, Bill for Scythe films. It was a sort of rediscovery of Scottish identity and I, I think like big country were a massive part of that. It it ran through all culture, it was literature, art, music, you know, everything.
0: Yeah, um I've got a working theory about not just about this band, but about kind of a lot of Scottish 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 ish music. You know, music that is actually <laughs> talking about the, the, the character of being a Scot or, you know, References our culture and our heritage and stuff like that. Um, so back in the early twentieth century, there was like there was an idea kicking about in literary literary circles called the Caledonian Anti-Syzyg, and it's the Caledonian. Sorry, like the Caledonian what? Anti-Syzyg. Anti-Syzyg. Yep, that's exactly it. That. Yeah, the Caledonian Anti-Syzyg. How do you spell that? A N T I S Y Z Y G Y. Anti-censorship. Okay. Yeah, I've total. I've, I've never heard that. Yeah, so there's basically this idea that kind of comes from how the Scottish identity is and as o- as and of itself an idea of dual polarities within one entity. It kind of <laughs> comes back to this idea of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, or you just of, leveled um, up guys, or or <laughs> like this, uh, or like private memoirs and confessions of justified So this idea that within the Scot there is. In the Scottish psyche, there's two things that are fundamentally at war with themselves. There's this idea of romanticism, you know, calling back to our, our purebred heritage, like the Highlands and all the cool stuff like that. You know, the stuff that big big country do really well. Um, Their sound is really wistful, you know. It kind of t- speaks of housing days and they actually sing about it in some songs. But the other side of that is the the blunt reality of life as a Scot, you know, and, and particularly as a working class Scot, you know, and... Um, so this, this idea kind of comes out from people who are clearly studying Robert Louis Stevenson and James Hogg. It, it kind of comes back to this idea of uh, T. S. Eliot said that there was absolutely no value in provincial Scottish literature. So um, obviously <laughs> that got Hugh McDermott, who was actually was actually one of the people that formed the SNP in the in the just in the post and sort of modernist period uh, between World War One and World War Two. He was really really passionately patriotic, you know. Uh, and he kind of elaborated on the concept of it uh, because he was like, well, I'm, I'm a Scot and, and I understand what that means. And he seemed to reference this kind of contradictory quality um, that a lot of Scots, a lot of Scots literature had at the time. I think a lot of Scots art since then has also, also wrestled with this idea. Big Country are a really great example of that. Um, a lot of their music is kind of forlorn, you know, it kind of harkens back to traditional elements. There's a lot of Celtic folk in it, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And then they get rid of it later on because they start to see the reality, not just the reality of coming across as being quite a procreal band because they're like bringing in all these Celtic elements that are of one nation, but they clearly still want to be a big rock band. And they do they do that when they become, you know, Big Dad energy in the, in the 90s. Um I mean, certainly so you two
2: became the biggest band in the world because they weren't, they didn't sound Irish at all.
0: Mm-hmm. I can, you can imagine if you're working with Steve Lillywhite and you're seeing that, it could have been us and they, they fucking love us, but also we've got something we really want to say. Yeah. And it comes back to that, 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 you know, that anti the Scottish disjunc- disjunction, I suppose is what you could call it, right? Um, these two warring facets of that. And I, I think it doesn't just go through art, but I think it goes through us as Scots as well as people. Um, on one hand we're quite a lot of us not all of us a lot of us are quite fervent and quite protective of our of our nation and our culture because it's been sought to be erased by our entities over centuries and on the other hand we also look at things like being part of a, a collective worldwide globalized community you know and i think the anti is, is still a big thing i think big country are a really the example of this in music and i, I think it's still a so I work in theory, it's an idea that I'd like to explore further, I suppose. Um Can I can I put a pin in it for a second and just say, Dave, I
1: think you're right about the U two comparison. I do think U two early on had quite a lot of Irishness. And mm-hmm. I mean certainly, you know, things like Bloody Sunday and all that kind of stuff, that that sort of like mirrors a bit of what big country were doing when they were singing about the Jacobite Rebellion and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the Highland clearances. Um and I agree, I think they maybe looked at that and thought, Oh, wait a minute though, they're now moving up a level um, this may be the reason when they did peace in their time in 1988 that they moved to that producer Peter Wolf, yeah. Um, because they were trying. It looks like they were trying to do that to break an American market, and they brought out songs like King of Emotion uh, with that big dad rock thing going on. And it's a transitional period for them, and it's one where they they go downhill. Let's just be honest. Uh, but it could be it, it could be the manifestation of, of what you're talking about. Um, I, I mean. I, I want to just kind of like broaden this just a little bit because I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that, you know, we've got a lot of foreign listeners for this podcast. We've actually got a lot more people in other countries listening than we do in Scotland. And I think, I think it's interesting to sort of give our impressions of what Scottishness means because we're talking about the SNP and that that alone can be a confusing thing. So in the, in the 70s, when Dave's talking about the big oil discoveries off the North East Coast, I mean, back then, I mean, my dad still refers to them as the Tartan Tories. Mm-hmm. It was quite quite a different beast from the political party that's in, in power in Scotland today who are now broadly centre-left uh, with some really quite progressive policies. And I think Scottish culture generally... Is centre left. It's been that way for a long time. It was always a poorer country with lower life expectancy, more reliant on uh, industry, steel, coal, shipbuilding, especially in Glasgow where we are. Uh, I think it's a country with an interesting, like that. That is, uh, visitors and friends of mine to Scotland find think at first it's a little bit far fetched, you know, but there is. A distinction. There's certainly a a cultural distinction between Scotland and England, despite how close they are. I mean, you know, look at any voting map, for example, and see that I I think barely a right wing politician has been elected here in the last 25 years, compared to England, where you know, if you see the Maggie Simpson map of Scotland that you get in an election, where it's all yellow up here, which is centre left or liberal democrat centre left, and you see England, which is usually predominantly blue. You see there a distinction now. This is kind of fed into by, you know, a history of a lot of things. In you know, 1707, the great betrayal, as they call it, the, the Act of Union, in, in which, you know, the, the, the leaders of, at the, of the time were largely bought off by the English Parliament to sign away a lot of the, a lot of the rights uh, that Scottish people had. And I think, like, I mean, there's so much that happened beyond then. There was the, there was the clans or the Jacobites. There was the mid-18th century, I think, is a really fascinating
0: Period for the Scottish psyche as well. Absolutely, that, that whole split personality of Scotland comes from comes from that, you know, and it's still something we, we deal with today.
1: Well, it's interesting that very few, of the people I'm talking about as well, visitors, friends from other places, very few of them know about the Highland Clearances, for example, as the ethnic cleansing that it was. I think that's a fascinating thing that we experienced ethnic cleansing. Thousands. I mean, you 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 had atrocities, I mean real atrocities you had people being put on ships that they they knew that almost the entire ships were going to die of disease by the time they got to Canada, you had Villages were just set on fire Villages set on fire with the people fleeing, you know people killed in the fires, people killed by the soldiers, people Dying by the dozens of exposure You know, like hundreds and hundreds Of bodies, people flooding down To cities like Glasgow This is part of why Glasgow became such an Impoverished city, because you had this Massive influx of basically asylum seekers From the north, you Uh know yeah, continue. I've got something I add to that, but sorry, continue. Just, just looking for shelter. Arriving here with like the possessions they had on their backs, no shoes, illness, you know, frostbite, all kinds of things. It's, it's a fascinating period of our history, but it's also a history that we've sort of learned to just, well, it's just, it's just what it is because it's not given really that widespread recognition, and it does contribute to that duality. There is a genuine trauma behind that. And the legacy of these events is where we find ourselves now, still having things like, you know, independence referenda to try and establish self-governance. And I think it's just such a complicated history that people coming to Scotland don't necessarily appreciate. You know, I know that Irish history is very well documented and, and rightly so, but I think Scottish history is sort of a little bit... Underplayed. It, it underplayed and sort of oversimplified and, and really... The the psychology is complicated, and I think it's you're right. It's reflected in the bitter sweetness of some of this stuff. Jubilant songs about sad things, um, like big bangers about mass murder, and oh, like it's 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 a it's it's a really interesting tapestry of emotions being Scottish, and I think the political situation is is the same. You know, it's changed quite a bit since the seventies. The eighties were a very very difficult time for Scotland under the Thatcher government. Uh, it was a terrible time economically as the old industries collapsed and were replaced and big country talk about this a lot and this is all reflected in it and it's all still we're still living with that st- those generations of people are still alive and those villages are often still a mess and these these towns and cities are still trying to recover from the damage that was done to them it's yeah so if you're a foreign listener the scottish attitude to things is quite um what's what's the word there's a bit of gallows humor in everything in scotland i think gallows humor is a good way to put it we, we have to laugh off the kind of sinister side of, of, of a lot of things and we just get on with it because otherwise
0: if you don't laugh you'll cry as I say I don't want to contradict you too much on what you said there Chris but there's a couple of, a couple of things I wanted to spell about the cleanesties that you kind of mentioned there um, in numerical terms there were actually more people dispossessed in the south than the north the cleanesties were a Scottish-wide phenomenon but there the is that. I mean I guess contrary to popular belief is many Highlanders actually managed to retain some of the land at the time um, One of the one of the most well-known things is up in Ascent, a up in the far northwest. 48 townships were cleared, whereas down in, Lamures, down in the Lowlands, it was up to 54 between 1800 and 1825 You know, a lot of the people the Highlanders, people that live up north particularly, um, especially if you're from Crofton background, are quite aware of the Highland season and, 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 and the rot that that's brought to our entire parts of the country Low, Lowlanders like us are quite blissfully unaware of it because when, when when our lot were chucked out of chucked off the land and just to just to clarify something here um, the people that the landowners that were particularly got upon or like hit upon by the government were the ones that supported Jacobite rebellion this was an actual fucking act from the, from the British government to quell potential rebellion in future as well um, but the lowlanders could go to cities and towns that were made specifically for us you know like mills and, and mines the, the highlanders just couldn't do that um, i th- i think well, the the islands
1: of the west coast though the, the, the situations of entire islands being cleared you know people yeah, totally. put on boats in mm-hmm. masse mass and trying you know heading for you know newfoundland and never making it the stories of i mean white slavery in in those kind of areas as well you know from scotch people fleeing in desperation and and the, the sheer level of like Disease and death on those boats, and the conditions they travelled in, is really, really underreported. And, and There is a
0: yeah, there is a real lack of awareness about that, even within our own population. Interesting little tidbit, which is just kind of keeping in mind this as we're talking about that. There, uh, I, when I did Scottish language back in uni, um, Scots language back in uni, um, there's various different dialects of Scots. There's Lowlands, which is the Lowlands. There's Doric, which is up on the far right near Aberdeen. It's horrible. It's fucking so impenetrably difficult as well, Doric. But there's also one called Ulster uh, Scots. And the reason that is, is because many present-day Ulster Protestants are descended directly from people who were swept off of over a over to Northern Ireland. Um, and that's also another fascinating thing. Like, people were sent all everywhere, you know. Uh, if you weren't kept a slave, um, an island, as a slave, as a Highlanders, because the landowners obviously still needed fucking peasants to actually work the land, land and all that, then... We're going to get kicked away somewhere, you know. Um, one of the most infamous clearances that happened, just as an example, was uh, the Countess of Sutherland. She she dispossessed 15,000 people from her estate alone.
2: My, my family are from Sutherland. And, uh, I mean, it's an area a third the size of Belgium. And there's just fuck all there. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's just towns and villages that have got nothing there. And this is, you know, 200 years later. And it still hasn't mm-hmm. recovered. People haven't gone back, and people are—you know—people are still leaving. There's no young people left. Um, yeah. they've been leaving. You know, there's been a drain for so long.
1: It's interesting actually because we so often talk about the the incredible prevalence of music in Glasgow, and part of that is because the youngsters from the rest of the country come here, which are just godforsaken, empty backwater, dead end places. And I'd say that haven't come from one to some extent. Mm-hmm and Dave as well, it's like we migrate to cities like Glasgow and you end up with a concentration of creative youngsters looking for an outlet and this is the only place in the country where you can really get it. So um, what I would say in a nutshell is see the next time you wonder why Scots have such a fucking chip on their shoulder with English. (laughs) (laughs) Give us peace. On that note, it's a, it's a nice cheery way to finish this episode, guys. I think what we should do is we should wrap it there and we'll come back and start talking about their discography in the next episode. How do you feel about that?
2: Yeah, we good. should probably talk about the band again
1: rather than just her. Aye, <laughs> fucking. I've got my fucking, my blood's up. i <laughs> it to go and malky someday. Right, uh, okay, cool. That was good, Mark. Fucking hell, man. You've It's amazing you keep all that shit just hidden away. <laughs> it's just up in here, man.
0: <laughs> Not
1: just good looks and tattoos, yeah. man.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, can I chuck okay, one bro, more guys. thing in that I, that I really, I, really, oh, I really, just really, want to mention this? Right. Is a uh, bonus trivia? Bonus <laughs> trivia. A lot of people might not know who it is. It's, like in Glasgow, the centre of Glasgow is George Square, right? And it's called George Square after King George III. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's called that is because uh, Walter Scott brought him to Scotland to kind of give him a big parade. He was implicit in the fucking in the Highland clearances. And Walter Scott is a guy who sits in the centre In the plinth in the middle of George Square. So, yep. seeing when we start talking about statues and all that, maybe we should take a wee look at our own, our own past Thick. as well. I need to fucking Edinburgh as well. God damn it! <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm done. Right, back next week for some actual music. We'll fucking we'll,
1: we'll knock this nationalist stuff in the head. Cool. <laughs>